Week 8, Day 5. Let Everything Praise the Lord, Part 4. Hey everyone, I'm Tyler. I'm the worship resident here at Three Crosses. Welcome to our final installment of our journey through the Psalms. And I'm Solomon. I'm one of the worship leaders here at the church. And today we're going to be talking about praise. So let's get started with Psalm 150. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What a magnificent end to the Psalter and to our own journey through the Psalms. All rainbows and butterflies, right? Just joyfully praising God. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. Over and over and over. The word praise is the beginning of almost every line. You know, it's easy for me to think of this as repetitive and mundane and easily gloss over it all thinking, okay, I get it. God deserves praise. But if we slow down to really examine the text and our own hearts, there's two big questions I feel we're faced with. First, how does the psalm inform and challenge how we worship? Even just rereading the psalm with that question in mind puts it in a whole new perspective. And the more we dig in, the more we realize the psalm has some really strong implications. I even dare say commands about who, what, when, where, why, and how we worship. And we're definitely going to dive into that soon enough. But for now, let's shelf the how question because I would argue the biggest challenge in the psalm is in the very last verse. And I'd actually love to tackle that challenge first. The last verse of the psalm reads, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Many scholars believe this equally means let every breath praise the Lord. Each one of our breaths should be a praise to the one who gave us each one of those breaths to begin with. I know, this already sounds idealistic. I'll be the first to say that each breath of mine has certainly not been a breath of praise. Which brings up the other big question we're faced with when we put the psalm in the context of reality. What do we do with this psalm when we don't feel like praising God? After all, as we've seen, the psalms are a beautiful representation of the flow of the ups and downs of the spiritual life, so naturally there's plenty of psalms of lament. Maybe I'll just turn to one of those when my soul feels downcast. That would honestly be my initial reaction or desire. But after sitting with this psalm through the ups and downs of weeks leading up to preparing for this, I started to feel convicted to turn to Psalm 150 in the valleys and pits of despair I faced, as well as the ecstatic moments where praise flowed out of me more naturally. In stress, I'd much rather turn to Psalm 23 or 127. When I'm afraid, Psalm 27 or 121. When I'm in pain or the despair of repentance, my instinct is to turn to Psalm 51 or 130. I love those Psalms, and of course, they're there for a reason and we learn so much from them. However, I'm also reminded of Acts 16 when Paul and Silas break out into songs of praise in the face of fear, stress, danger, and persecution. We all wish we could be more like them, right? And it sounds like this psalm is actually challenging us to be more like them in our own trying circumstances, to choose praise instead of fear. This psalm doesn't pose praise as a question or designate times or places we're supposed to worship and other times it's not. Rather, it designates all places and all times of our lives to be filled with praise of our infinite God. It's essentially a command to worship at all times. Total devotion, total praise, every breath, everything, every act, everywhere, all of it. Sometimes when you're in the right mood, this seems like a total piece of cake. We're excited, feel close to God, see Him moving in tangible ways in our lives, and we can't help but praise Him. 
it seems to just be overflowing from us. And then we see someone's Instagram post and immediately get caught up in comparison and jealousy. Or we check the news and we're distraught upon seeing the brokenness of our world. Or we have a difficult conversation with someone we love. And now we don't feel like praising at all. I'll absolutely be the first person to say that maintaining a constant state of overwhelmingly joyful praise is infinitely easier said than done. I'm full-time staff at a church, and my primary role is to lead thousands in praising Jesus every Sunday, and I pray that that flows into the rest of our weeks as well. But there are plenty of times when I struggle to place my heart in a posture of praise. It's hard. We're not robots. We're human. So our flaws keep us from fully embodying even the simplest commands. Yet, the psalm still phrases the idea of worship in such a firm, commanding way. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I think there's actually a lot of wisdom in purposefully commanding us to do things that are hard, things we don't always want to do. This is because we need rules. We need discipline. Because despite popular opinion, discipline and rules actually set us free. They set us free from being like a leaf blown in the wind by our emotions and the people around us, which is much more of a prison than praise is, or any of God's commands for that matter. The discipline of following God's commands sets us free, and this psalm is no exception. So we know the discipline of praise is good for us. That's easy enough for us to wrap our heads around, yes? But then we realize practically it's so hard. This idea of total praise reminds me of Matthew 19 when a young, rich man feels proud of himself after telling Jesus he's followed all the Torah's commandments, but immediately walks away feeling deflated after Jesus tells him that if he really wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven, he has to go sell all he owns and give the money to the poor. It's easy to judge that young man for not being able to sacrifice absolutely everything for Jesus then and there, but the reality is that we are that young man. We, as the broken species of humanity, are incapable of total praise. We can't arrive there on our own. The all-star apostle Paul tells us in Romans 7:18. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's us constantly. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Paul continues in Romans 8, verses 3-4, through 4, saying, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We need grace. We need the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord, for he lavishes his grace on us and has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. We need it. We're going to continue failing to praise God, but by his grace, we can move our hearts back to a place of worship over and over again. This alone is one of the many reasons to praise him, because his grace moves our hearts back to the place they thrive in, a posture of praise. So we're realizing sometimes it's easy to jump into praise. You may have just experienced a joyous moment. You may have seen God answer your prayers. It's easy to adopt a posture of praise as a natural response. For others, it may take a while to shift the difficult things out of your heart's focus long enough to let the things of God come into focus and to be seen again. If this is you, take this moment to think about all the reasons you may actually have to offer praise to the Lord. That He is kind and proud of us that he loves unconditionally? How has he moved in spite of troubling circumstances? What prayers has he answered? How has he been faithful? What has reminded you of his goodness? What is it like to soak in the presence of the Lord? Think about what it's like to draw near to the Lord and think about what this says about him. Dwell with him and let thanksgiving and joy overflow. 
Remember as much as you can of what he has done from your salvation through the blood of his son to the very breath you took this morning. Think about how his faithfulness will continue no matter what. Have hope in the future and take heart in what is to come for the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Remember that the future is in his hands because he goes before. Take a deep breath in and remember and breathe out a breath of hope for the future. C.S. Lewis writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anybody how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And I would like to suggest that simply dwelling isn't enough. Unexpressed worship is incomplete. That's why we are called to express our praise to God for his kindness and goodness and faithfulness directly in all circumstances. A couple of the most tried and true ways of expressing our praise to the Lord is through singing, dancing, and exclaiming different truths about him. Singing a song of God's faithfulness, dancing for joy when prayers are answered, and crying out for joy or for help can all be praise. It is all a hallelujah. Hey, here's an idea. Give it a try right now. You might look like a fool to some degree to those that don't understand. But if anything, that's a good thing because it's closer to the truest sense of the word hallelujah. We are called to boastfully, unashamedly, maybe I look like a fool, but I don't care, undoubtedly, unmistakably, to the fullest extent that you can express praise because it makes our worship complete. In fact, the completion of our praise extends and is finished in our attempts to woo the Lord. In our attempts to move his heart, just as Moses did. Our obedience to his word throughout scripture is an extension of our praise and desire to please him. A deep sigh of relief, a belly laugh, an ugly cry, and the exhausted breathing of someone working way too hard to put food on the table for their kids can all be breaths of praise. Praise the Lord with every breath is not just saying the right things or saying hallelujah multiple times a day. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're learning it's a command and a challenge, albeit too great for us to achieve on our own. But there's something beyond that here as well. As the final psalm in the Psalter, it's symbolic of our arrival at the end of the Christian journey, a glimmer of hope, something to look forward to. Eventually, every tear will be wiped away and we'll be in complete communion with our Savior God with no other desire but to praise him with everything we have. We'll finally arrive at a place where all we can do is praise, like we see in Revelation 5. If the Psalms are a representation of the Christian journey, then it's only natural for the Psalter to arrive at a final destination of total praise. To quote F.B. Meyer, Your life may resemble the Psalter with its varying moods, its light and shadow, its sob and smile, but it will end with hallelujahs, if only you will keep true to the will and way and work of the Most Holy. Okay, so now we've covered the concept of praising. Now let's revisit the practical how question. 
With this practical context in mind of praising him with every breath and our lives, let's now address what the psalm says about the worship we're supposed to bring to him. From now on, we're focusing on the context of corporate worship, like in our Sunday services. Verse 1 of the psalm says, Praise the Lord. Who are we praising? The Lord, of course. Yahweh, Jesus, his Holy Spirit. And then verse 2 continues on saying, Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. His sanctuary refers to his home on earth, which, since the curtain in the temple was torn, is now his believers here on earth. We should also praise him in his heavens, which is also translated as expanse which in this context most likely means from horizon to horizon, so all over the earth. We worship together globally as the body of Christ everywhere we go, here on earth and in heaven. Next, the psalm gives us two reasons why we worship. We worship him firstly for his mighty deeds, for what he's done. Like Saul mentioned earlier, this is easy when we've recently seen him move tangibly in our own lives, but he's also done so much more than we've seen physically in our own lives. Even the entire Bible itself is incomplete in describing everything God has done. However, it does sufficiently describe some of the greatest things God has done. This is why from the very beginning we have been called to delight in God's word and meditate on it day and night. What do we learn from God's word? When we meditate on his divine perspective in the scriptures, we remember all the journeys in which God delivers his people from bondage, like how God brought his people through the Red Sea out of Egypt, how the Lord would eventually deliver his people from exile back to Jerusalem. These journeys are Israel's claims to fame, if you will. And the most important journey of all is the Messiah coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying to set us free from the penalty of our sins, being resurrected, and inviting us back into God's presence to share in the same resurrected life. When we pray, one of the key topics we think through is things we're thankful for, or praise reports, if you've heard that Christian lingo. Most of the time we thank him for things that have recently happened in our own lives. But it's also important, maybe even more so, to remember those great things God has done in the Bible setting his people free from slavery, setting his people free from the shackles of sin in the gospel story of Christ. Revisiting the idea that we're not always in the right mood to worship, a common tool people talk about using to combat negative feelings is recounting the things we're thankful for. We should do the same thing with God. When we're questioning how he's moving, or even if he's moving in our lives, we look back and say, praise him for what he's already accomplished in the past, and remind ourselves, what he's already done is more than we deserve and more than enough. When we're able to position ourselves in this place of thankfulness, we're much more effective in worshiping genuinely. He is faithful. We just have to take time to intentionally remind ourselves of that sometimes. Then we continue with praise him according to his excellent greatness. In other words, praise God for who he is. This reason to worship is a little more challenging. We're getting into slightly deeper waters here. Many spiritual leaders will say that learning to praise God simply for who he is rather than what he has done or what you expect him to do, is a very mature place to be as a Christian. So many times in our lives, we look to God as a genie, a God who's going to give us exactly what we need or want right when we want it. And don't get me wrong, we know God loves to give good gifts to his children, as Jesus describes in Matthew 7, and give us the desires of our hearts as we delight in him, as the psalmist says in Psalm 37. However, Reaching a place of saying, God, I choose you, regardless of whether I get what I want, is a really hard place to reach and let alone maintain as our constant, unfaltering mindset. I think this is a challenge for us to grow into spiritual maturity. And it's also, like we discussed earlier, a glimpse of the perfect future after knowing Jesus' second coming. An insight into the perfect praise we'll be giving God after he puts everything in its rightful place when heaven and earth are wholly one. 
We'll praise him for being I am who I am, the first name God gives himself when meeting Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. For being the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We'll praise him for bringing righteous justice for his power, truth, forgiveness, creativity, and capability. Praise for the fact that he is sovereign, gracious, merciful, compassionate, and loving. Praise that he heals, that he saves, protects, leads, and strengthens, and so much more. He's an infinite God, and we have infinite things to praise him for. Finally, let's take a look at the gut of this concluding psalm, verses 3 through 5 where we find a number of instruments listed. Verse three, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud crashing cymbals. At first glance, it may seem like a list of specific instruments to use, but if we place it in the context of ancient Israel, at the time it was written, we find a much deeper and very significant meaning tucked away in the heart of the psalm. On the surface, we see a list of instruments that may or may not have been exhaustive. We don't know if Israel had more instruments than these or not, but what we're supposed to take away here is to praise God with all sorts of instruments. Rather than a limitation to using specific instruments, the intent is in fact the opposite, to invite us to praise God with all the instruments that we can. Those were the typical and accessible instruments in ancient Israel, and now we are supposed to use our instruments in the same way. God desires his worship to be diverse in instrumentation, but also complete. We learned that everything with breath should praise the Lord, and that same sentiment is found here in verses 3 through 5. Every instrument should praise the Lord. Now, this is an incredible truth as it is, but there's also something even deeper going on here. Each of these specific instruments were played by people from different social groups. So if the list means all instruments, it also implies all people should praise God all different types of people playing all different sorts of instruments. And now, another layer, we praise him in all types of music too. Different instruments are used in different styles of music, and once again, the list is meant to essentially mean all. So it basically means all styles of music. Furthermore, different styles of music and different instruments are used in different contexts of life some in ceremonies, some in everyday life, and certainly in different contexts stylistically. So we're meant to praise him in incredibly diverse ways. Diverse in all the instruments we use, diverse in who's worshiping, diverse in the styles of music, and in all different parts of life. In a ceremony, like a church service for example, in our day-to-day life, in entertainment, our praise should be in all of that. The ultimate goal is to praise him with everything we've got. Praise him loud with crashing cymbals and ecstatic, unrestrained hallelujahs. So, throughout this entire series, we've been wrestling with a single question. How are we able to hold on to the truth about the goodness of God and his promises when our circumstances challenge our very thoughts and emotions so much that we begin to believe that God is absent? We pray that your journey through the Psalms in this series has led you to the same place that we find ourselves at the end of the Psalter. We end with a call to praise the Lord once again. That's what the Psalter leaves us off with. Praise the Lord. That's it. Praise. And when we do, we remember that God is with us, no matter the circumstance. We praise the Lord for sending the new and better David, Jesus the Messiah who shed blood on the cross to wipe away the punishment and power of sin. 
We praise the Lord knowing that he has revealed himself to us in the creation around us, in the scriptures, and through prayer. We praise the Lord as we rest in the hope that he will one day make everything right. Hallelujah! He's worthy of our praise and devotion, so let's give it to him. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. One last quote to think about as we close out this series. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Let's be done with worship that is always weak and unexciting. If you cannot sing loudly and make loud music to praise the God who has redeemed you in Jesus Christ and is preparing you for heaven, perhaps it's because you do not really know God or the gospel at all. If you do know him, hallelujah. As we continue our journey with Christ, how do you feel the Spirit is challenging you in regards to the way you worship and praise him? What is one takeaway that you would like to hold on to from this entire series?